welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study, where we're going to be going through the scriptures for the next hour. And uh, before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. I usually have everybody stand here, but the other people in different places, it's weird for them to stand. So we'll just all stay seated. Don't want you to work too hard anyway. <laughs> let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the truth of your word that you've left for us, that we can follow the instructions from this so that we can walk in a way that pleases you and walk in victorious Christian life. We thank you for it. Give us wisdom, understanding. Let the Holy Spirit make these truths real to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So I just got out of a chair for two hours at the dentist's office. And my mouth is still a little dub. Buh, 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 buh. I also got a little buzz going from one of the painkillers. <laughs> if I seem a little weirder than normal, you'll know why. However, my guess is that, sadly, the version of me drugged up is pretty much the same as the version of me is normal. And <laughs> you're likely to see no difference. We are in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. This is his second letter that he wrote to the church. You remember the first letter was the letter to the Galatians, and it had a very specific purpose. Specific. It feels weird when I say that. Specific purpose. Ouch. <laughs> I bite my own tongue. Uh, uh, specific. And the purpose was to fight back this argument that people were saying you have to become Jewish before you can become a Christian. And Paul just obliterated that. I can't talk. Uh, and then they had the big council in Jerusalem, and they set the thing to rest. No, that's not true. You do not have to become Jewish before you become a Christian. Praise be to God. So his second letter now, it's kind of a generic letter, although usually these letters are, many of them are prompted by specific questions that the church has had. So we know that Paul is on his Second missionary journey, he goes all the way up into here, uh, Thessalonica, and then he's sitting down in Corinth, and then these people wrote, or contacted him, whatever, or, you know, sent somebody or wrote a letter, whatever, asking some, some questions and stuff, and then Paul writes the first letter to them. And Paul's way of writing generally is he would write in two tracks. One is he would discuss theology really trying to get people to understand the mystery, as he called it, the mystery of Christ and all the stuff that's going on in the background that we're not even aware of and giving insights on what Jesus really did and what's going on in the spirit and all these kind of things. Uh, and, uh, and then the second track is then he usually discusses practical Christian living. This is how you're supposed to live. I appreciate the theology part of it. Personally, my favorite part is the practical Christian living part of it. This is how you live, right? This is really where everybody uh, deals with what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. Uh, usually very little arguments among Christians on the second track about how you're supposed to live. Uh, although some do, but I mean, it's, that's not usually where Christians historically have argued, where they've gotten into the weeds with each other and splitting in from one group to another group and all these different denominations and, you know, yet, what, 50 different kinds of Baptists alone. It's usually on the theology part. They argue about what 
every little phrase and every concept about spirituality is supposed to mean, and I don't think Paul intended for us to go at each other's throats over basic theology, even advanced theology. I just, I don't think that was a, a clearly, that was not his point, because he'd always try to end up with love each other and get along. I don't think he wrote so we could start arguing about stupid stuff. Uh, now, some people say, well, it's not stupid, but I mean, it's, I call it stupid stuff because it's, it's just debatable. You don't know. If you think you know everything about the Bible, you're crazy. All right? A little humility. That's what we try to practice here, <laughs> despite your pastor. <laughs> a celebration church, but certainly when it comes to theology, we try to practice some humility. This is what we think it means. Here's a possibility. You'll often see me going, you know, this is what some people say. This was some other. I'll try to show you both sides, sometimes three sides of the argument. I'll tell you what I think, but we don't make a big deal about it. If everybody has a different version of it, I don't care, okay? Uh, because it's just, I don't think that's the kind of stuff we're supposed to be fighting over. The basics, obviously, about who Jesus is, stuff about in the Apostles' Creed, the basic Christian faith. Yeah, we're pretty hardcore about that, but you know, exactly how you should be baptized or this kind of stuff. We just don't get into all that, that kind of stuff. So anyway, Paul is, uh, and, and he usually starts out with his theology first. He'll start out giving us all the theology, and then he gets into practical Christian living. Some of his books are kind of a little bit of everything all over the place. Uh, but that's why he starts out with this one with the theology and answers some of the basic questions. One of the basic questions we talked about, ended with it last week, is they basically said, because he says in chapter 4, verse 1, as for other matters, uh, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And then he starts really asking, answering questions about sex, because they were wondering, is that okay? Can we just do this? And he said, no. You know, get married. That's basically the deal. If you want to have sex, get married. Beyond that, don't be sexually immoral. And he was very, very, very strong about it, very, very clear about it. Uh, so that was like kind of the main question that they had there. Uh, and then from there, he launches into just practical Christian living, which is pretty much his modus operandi. So we pick it up at verse 9, all right? Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In other words, he's basically saying the fundamental premise of the Christian experience is love. You know, you don't need some big explanation about this. Uh, we're, God loved us, we love God, and we are supposed to love each other, okay? God loves us, we love God, and we're supposed to love each other. The first two we're all pretty good with <laughs> is the last one, the dealing with loving each other. It, is, it can be very tricky. And I hope you notice as we go into this, the Bible oftentimes will focus in the New Testament on the theology about our relationship with God. But then he deals with quite a bit our relationship with each other. And it is a falsity. Ooh, it's kind of a strong word to use, and I hope I don't get myself in trouble with it, but hear me. Uh, it's a falsity, I think, to say that if you just get this right, all this will fall into place automatically. If that were the case, he would just tell us about how to connect more with God, right? But he doesn't do that. He tells us how to, that's why a lot of the uh, marriage seminars, for example, that's, that's what I do as I travel around the world, uh, is pretty practical stuff. I don't throw a whole lot of Bible verses at people. So I show people just practically 
as Paul would talk, about how to get along with each other and how to understand each other. Many Christian uh, uh, seminars, marriage seminars, if you go to them, are full of theology. And they're convinced that if you just connect this more, if you get this flowing, that all this will take care of itself. And my experience is, I, I don't think that's true. I know people who really love Jesus and can't stand their spouse. Now, it's a little inconsistent to say the least. I know pastors. You surely, you know, pastors, Randy, guys like this. They, man, there's no question. They love God. They know the scriptures. They're really into it. They can't stand each other because they irritate the snot out of each other. And they make the mistake thinking, well, if I just pray more, if I just study more, it'll fix this. And it doesn't necessarily. That's why Paul gives us practical advice on how to do this. Because we need to be very practical at this. Uh, the one, I think, should inspire the other without a doubt. But, uh, you know, the two are, I think, a little different tracks. You need to know both. So he says, you don't really need to be explained the love thing. You guys are supposed to love each other. Uh, verse 10, in fact, you do all uh, love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, uh, which is this whole, this whole area here, Macedonia, this whole area that... They live here, but all these Christians that were becoming, people that were becoming Christians, they loved each other very much. He said, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And practical Christianity, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, that's almost a little odd because as Americans, we want to lead super loud lives. Loud lives, big lives, incredible lives, lives that I'm all for. Be as big and loud as you can, because it's me talking to you. All right? But really, he says, make it your ambition. I would think it's very weird, especially from a, uh, an American point of view, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Yeah, that's what he says. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be successful. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't be loud either. But it's not supposed to be about that. It's supposed to just... Have a successful life. Make it your goal. And why does he talk about uh, a successful life? Uh, you should mind your own stinking business. <laughs> mind your own business. Don't be sticking your nose in everybody else's business, which is what people are inclined to do, right? Everybody has an opinion about everybody else. The more you know about somebody else, the more you have opinions about how they should or should not act. Just look at people's kids running around Walmart. Everybody has an opinion about those kids, <laughs> how they should act and behave. At some level, you're just supposed to mind your own stinking business. And he says, and work with your hands, just as we told you. Uh, don't be a slacker. Don't be sitting around thinking God's going to take care of all your needs. If you want some money... Get a job. That's what he's saying. Right? That's what he's saying. Make it your go. Get a job. Take care of yourself. And don't leech on people, which he will build on in just a minute. This is basic Christianity. Shut up. Mind your own business. <laughs> Lead a nice together life. And pay for your own stuff. Wow. <laughs> so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Why? Because when outsiders look at people who basically mind their own business or kind, polite people who take care of their own bills and not a burden to anybody, people tend to admire that. What he's trying to say is we're supposed to live lives that people admire. 
Why? Because if people look at you and you live the kind of life that is admirable and they find out about your faith, they will want to learn more about your faith. I've always said, if you want to win people to Jesus, you need to win them to yourself. That's why. Be nice to people. Be friendly to people. Don't stick the Bible in everybody's eyes. Be nice. As you have opportunity to share your faith, go for it. But again, from the standpoint of winning people to yourself, you should lead the kind of life that people say, man, I want to be like you. Honestly, especially unbelievers. Unbelievers should look at you. And it's really not a hard because, you know, thing to do because most unbelievers' lives stink. <laughs> They do. They're just reeks. They struggle. They're full of bitterness and anger and this and insecurities and fears and stuff. And, and then you come along and we're supposed to be peace in the midst of a storm. It's like, whoa, how can you stay so calm? Not that we don't have the wind. We all have the winds, right? Jesus talked about building your house either on a rock or on sand. Both of them, the seas rose against. Both of them, the wind blew like crazy. Both of them, the rain came down. Don't think because you're a Christian, you're not going to have the winds and the rains and all the other nonsense. They both had them. The difference is this one collapsed, this one did not. And after the storm passes and everybody's laying in ruins, they look at your house and go, wow, <laughs> how'd you do that? And it gives you opportunity to share. We're supposed to live lives that people want to be. That's why don't be a jerk. All right? Say, Pastor, I can't help it. Yes, you can. Don't be a jerk to people. Don't be mean and nasty to people. Now, that's really hard, especially if you get around people. <laughs> right? Because those people out there, they just make you crazy. I know this. I struggle with this as well. Now, I have a greater motivation to stay in line because everybody knows who I am in this area. I learned this out painfully early on because <laughs> I was at a Walgreens trying to get a, uh, a passport photo, right? So complicated to get a passport photo. You got to follow the rules. And everything. So I'm standing in line, and the guy behind the counter was, mildly speaking, a moron and was doing everything wrong and just taking his time. He didn't know what he was doing, and I am getting ticked. I am, because what? People can drive you crazy, right? So I'm getting, and I'm this close to going off on this guy when suddenly he turns around and says, aren't you that pastor on TV? <laughs> Instantly, I had a miraculous transformation. <laughs> My response was, well, yes, of course, it is me. Is. <laughs> Which makes me a big fat stinking hypocrite, I know. But I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> Just when you think you can get away with something, you can't. All right? But people will drive you crazy. We need to try and love people uh, as best as we can so that our daily life may win the respective outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Again, he really hammers on this a lot uh, in his writings. One thing that just really seemed to irritate him to no end as people who didn't pay their way. Now, at the same time, he said the church should be there to help people. And if you're struggling, that we can... So I think he was all for compassion. He was all for charity. But that should be short-term deals. Okay, we've all... I don't know if any of you... <laughs> I've certainly been in places where 
I could use a hand up, all right? And that's fine. But you don't live there. You know, this mentality of other people should take care of me, the government should take care of me, everybody owes me something, is not a good mentality. It's certainly not a Christian mentality, all right? We're supposed to take care of ourselves. All right, anyway. He goes out to say, now, this is something else that they had a question about. What happens when somebody dies? Well, we kind of get that at this point. If someone who's a Christian dies, we know they go to be with the Lord, right? This is early Christianity. Christianity is brand new, pagan. All they had was all kinds of pagan concepts and ideas. Again, you've heard me say this many times, and I will drill this forever. Christianity is not like any other religious experience in the world. Of course, we believe it's the true experience. Every other religion in the world, you have to learn about that religion. Learn, 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 learn. You got to go take classes. You want to become a Buddhist? You know, man, you got to go study on that stuff. You want to become a this, that, and the other? Whatever it is, you got to study. You got to go through the classes. You got to da, 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 And then finally, at some point, they acknowledge you are now a convert to whatever once you've checked all the boxes and earned whatever you're supposed to earn. Christianity is completely different. And they're all doing that in an attempt to touch God, which I would argue they never can do because they're approaching it wrong. Christianity, you start out instantly touching God or being touched by God. You, you immediately get, that's the beauty of knowing Jesus. When you meet Jesus, you start out where everybody else in the world is trying to get. And they're working their butts off trying to get there. And you immediately this lift of sin, of the guilt, this wonderful experience of forgiveness, the peace of God that floods your soul. And what's amazing about it is you don't know Jack. Most people, right? I mean, when I, when I first asked Christ in my life, you know, I was, I was in the basement, you know, smoking dope. <laughs> Hola. You know, I'm just, I'm in my numbed out Kind of like I am right now. No, I'm not. I'm not that bad. <laughs> but I was totally, you know, bonkered. And somebody comes and starts sharing Jesus with me, and I had never heard anything like that. And at some point, faith fills my heart. I pray with this guy. I, man, heaven comes down, kisses the earth, and I'm right in the middle of the smack. Wow. It was a life-changing experience. But I didn't know anything. I don't know what it is. So now you start to learn. So these people as he's spreading the gospel, are immediately connecting with God. But now they need to learn. And there's things they don't quite get. So one of the questions they had is, what happens when somebody dies? We have Christian friends who, who die. And they did. They had friends who were, who were dying, just like everybody else in the world. Uh, so he says, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you will not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And I don't know if you've been to funerals where people don't know Jesus, but it's a dark, sad, grieving, painful experience. When you go to a funeral of someone who's truly known Christ, you almost feel a little guilty because it's kind of this party going on. Because on the one hand, you're sad they're gone. On the other hand, you're thinking, woohoo, they made it, you know, and we know that the heavens are celebrating because of this soul that's made it there. And uh, anyway, it's, it's a totally different experience. Christians approach death totally different than the rest of the world. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
So according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Talking about those who are dead. So immediately now, he jumps into uh, this idea. Now, they're saying, you know, what happens if people fall asleep? Of course, they're with the Lord right away, but what happened? See, they were really, really, really focused on the fact that Jesus was coming back right away. I don't think we really, you'll see it as we read through this, but their idea of the return of Christ was extremely powerful and incredibly eminent. They thought this was going to happen any minute. I think the earliest Christians, when Jesus said, you know, I'll be right back. They thought he was just like going out for milk or something. <laughs> he was going to go to the 7-Eleven and come back. I mean, I thought they really thought so. Because the early Christians, what did they do? They sold everything they had, right? They're all living together in this big, gigantic commune, which a lot of good things about that, okay? Love and taking care of each other. But at some point, they realized we run out of stuff. <laughs> That's why Paul's talking about them. Earn your own living, right? Don't be a slacker. We don't know how long this is going to take. But even still, they thought this was all going to happen rather quickly. So they're concerned. Their concern is, what if Jesus comes back? What happens to those who already died? That's the main thing. It's not so much, you know, does their soul go to heaven? That wasn't really quite. Their question was, what happens? Because Jesus could come back today, and my uncle Fred, who loved Jesus, just died. Is he going to miss out on the fact that Jesus came back? So, and what he's saying is, no, no, that's not what's going to happen. And then Paul describes what we are generally is referred to as the rapture. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll be uh, for the Lord, with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what he's really saying is they're not going to miss out on anything. When the Lord comes back, da-da-da-da, and then, boom, these guys go up there, and then, boom, we go up right after them, and boom, here comes Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of debate on exactly the timing of said event. Uh, and the truth is, <laughs> nobody really knows. Again, it's one of these areas that we just don't fight about. I mean, what are you going to do? Not go in the rapture if it doesn't happen when you think it should? You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Here's the three basic ideas. There's actually four. Idea number one is we know that this tribulation period is coming when the Antichrist will be revealed, which he's going to talk a lot about in his second letter. So uh, the general thinking among most evangelical Christians is they think the rapture occurs at the beginning of this so that we escape the uh, tribulation. I, I vote for that one. <laughs> if, if it's up for debate, if, you know, they're having election season, Lord, I, I check for the, let's get out of here before it all hits the fan. That's what I would like, all right? The second version is that it actually happens halfway through the tribulation. At three and a half years in the tribulation, that's when the rapture happens, and zoop, and then we get out before it really gets bad, would be my second choice. The third choice is we don't get out of this at all. We are going to go through this just like everybody else and all the misery 
of the dreaded tribulation, which we will get to eventually in our Bible study as we go through the New Testament. Uh, and that this happens at the last minute as the Lord is coming. And boom, he comes back. And so this all happens at the, at the very end. Not, not my first choice, all right? And then version four is, this doesn't happen at all. Which I don't understand these people who say, it doesn't happen at all. If it doesn't happen at all, what's he talking about? Clearly, it happens. And they've got pinheaded excuses for why it doesn't happen. I don't know. I don't really care. All right? Now, I just want to get to heaven. I'll take any four of those versions. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's going to happen the way it's going to happen, no matter what we think. So ease up on that stuff. But clearly, I think from Paul's writing, this event's going to happen. I hope it happens at the beginning. I'll take number two. I don't really want to do the whole tribulation thing. And, you know, assuming we're even still here, I could kick off tomorrow. God forbid. All right, so. Uh, now, brothers and sisters, he continues, it's, now it says chapter 5, but it's just the continuation of the uh, letter. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So the next question is, well, when's all this going to happen? And he says, well, I don't need to write. You guys know, we don't know what's going to happen. Anybody, listen to me, escúchame, all you people out there. On occasion, some Nimrod pops up and says he has figured out mathematically the date of the rapture. That person is an idiot, all right? And we have had this happen probably three major events that I can think of in my lifetime. I'm sure we're not done with the stupidity. What shocks me is how many Christians buy into it. Hello, what part of we won't know escapes people's minds? I don't understand that. He said, you're not going to know. Even Jesus said, I don't know. That's pretty strong. He says, the only one knows who knows is my father. He says, my guys, I don't, I don't even know what's going to happen. That's, that's pretty strong. When someone comes up, no, I figured out that, what were some of the books? 84 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1984. I can't remember this. These guys make a fortune, by the way, off of this stuff. The last one was some guy, it wasn't too many years ago, who figured out mathematically that Jesus was coming back on such and such date. People were selling their homes and quitting their jobs. And it's like, how can you be so dumb and still breathe? For heaven's sakes. And then it doesn't happen, of course. Then you go, oh, wow, wait a minute, I miscalculated. I was all, I didn't carry the three, and it's gonna happen. You know, and he gave us a new date. And people got caught up in the same stupidity. And then, you know, I remember people coming, Pastor, are you gonna teach on this Jesus coming back? No! Why? Because they're idiots. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. People writing, Pastor, what do you think? <sighs> do, you not, do you not, you know, I know the answer. I was going to say, do you not read the Bible? I know the answer. No, they don't. That's really the great problem with much of people's thinking today in Christianity. They don't read the Bible. They've got bits and pieces. They've got a few promise verses they pull out here, but they don't actually sit and read it. That's the importance of this Bible study is just going through the scripture and really teaching it so that we know what we're supposed to be believing. So... Uh, he says, oh, by the way, 
um, back in chapter 4, verse 15, before he gets into all this, he says, according to the Lord's word. Now, what's really interesting, he starts describing all these details. I don't remember anywhere in the Bible where Jesus really talks about this in great deal. Now, he does in Matthew and stuff, but not about this kind of detail. I'm curious as if they had, if there was this revelation thing that was happening in the church talking by the spirit about these things. In fact, they start talking about, in the next letter, about the Antichrist and all this kind of stuff, stuff we don't really find out about until revelations, right? Well, there is some uh, teaching about it in Daniel and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting how they knew. Uh, They didn't wait for John to talk about the Antichrist to know there's going to be an Antichrist coming. So this seemed to be rather common at the time. All right, so uh, he says, look, we don't know the time. He says, the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. Verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, everything's fine, it's all good, not going to be a problem, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You don't know exactly, but it won't be, you won't be taken like the rest. First of all, because we're supposed to be looking. We're supposed to be looking. We're supposed to be aware. Okay? Um, and I have a theory I Pure theory. I I can't help but think that as the day actually approaches, that there will be this incredible uh, activity of the Holy Spirit in people of faith, rising this anticipation big time. You know, like the baby's about to come, but we don't know when, but it's not like, really, you're pregnant? You know, I mean, I I don't think that's going to be that kind of surprise. We're going to know, I think, Uh, but not the specific time. But he says, you won't be, it won't be a surprise to you, like a thief. He says, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or, or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, drunk at night, unless you're from Wisconsin. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. This is the first time Paul uses this uh, analogy. When we get to Ephesians, he gets into it in, a, in greater detail, talking about the armor of God. And he goes through all these analogies. He talks about the uh, salvation as our, as our helmet. Uh, in Ephesians, he says, righteousness is our breastplate. Here he says, love and faith is our breastplate. Some pinheads might say, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. That's not a contradiction. He's just using an analogy, okay, of, of the stuff that we use to uh, stand firm as Christians. Uh, verse 9. Um, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse actually is used by people who make argument number one that the rapture will happen before any of this stuff happens. Because what happens in the rapture, and that's why some will say, well, no, it happens halfway through because that's when the wrath of God opens up and God's going to come down and just kick some serious butt. Wait till we get to Revelation. It's like, yikes. You, you don't want to... That's why I vote we get out of here before this happens. Their argument, this verse saying, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, um, that's why they believe the church has to be taken out of the way before all this stuff happens because God is not going to bring his wrath on his own people. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute. 
Christians have always suffered persecution. Even look at what's happening in the Middle East. You know, beheadings and horrible deaths as they persecute Christians. The difference there is that is coming from Satan and from evil men. There's a difference between that and God's wrath. God is not inclined to open up his wrath on his own people. So, again, I vote for number one. I hope that's what happens. All right. Um, he goes on to say, he died for us so that whether we are awake or sleep, we live or die, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Uh, now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. He's talking about pastors and elders and leaders in the church, uh, and he encourages them to be very nice to these people, to which I would say, amen. <laughs> Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. He's back to, he's wrapping this up with practical Christianity. The problem with the practical Christianity part is it goes by so fast. I'm always talking about raptures and stuff. Ooh, we get all this detail. And we talk about the theology, who we are in Christ and how we're seated in heavenly places with God in Christ Jesus and how all this was set out before the foundations of the earth and the plan of salvation, all this. And then we get to the practical stuff. It's like that, 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 that. And you read it, three seconds it took to read, not even that, and you forget it. All right? So we don't want to forget it. We want to focus on exactly uh, what he's saying. Um, we urge you to warn those who are idle and disruptive, people who aren't doing what he said earlier about taking care of their own, uh, earning their own business and being busybodies, sticking their nose in other people's business. He says, warn them not to be this way. Encourage the disheartened. Which, by the way, this is all kind of encouraging if you go through the list because you've got to look at it in, through a reverse filter. And, and that is this. We often get the idea that the first century church was so amazing, and it was, right? They had great miracles, and they're preaching the gospel and stuff, and you think, man, they were so holy, they were so righteous, they were so good, and then we look at today and go, oh, for crying out loud, right? But stop and think it through. The reason he's warning against idle and disruptive people is because the church had a bunch of idle and disruptive people. And I say, thank God. It makes us look norm more normal. Encourage the disheart disheartened. Why? There were early Christians who were very disheartened. You ever feel like that? You want to give up? Actually, I, I just put a post on my Facebook this afternoon. It says, if you never feel like your life sucks and that you ought to just give up, then you're probably doing something wrong. Did you catch that? If you never feel like your life sucks and you ought to just quit, you're probably doing something wrong. In other words, that's normal. There are times where people get discouraged. Don't be discouraged because you get discouraged. Everybody good with that? Sometimes they get discouraged. Yes, you're normal. Oh, but the early Christians were never discouraged. No, 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 no. They had the same stuff, the same problems that we have. All right? He says, help the weak. What does that mean? That means there were people in the first century church, 
with apostles and prophets and all the miracles and everything who were weak. And they needed help. And we're supposed to help people like that. Be patient with everyone. What does that mean? There were early Christians who would really try your patience. Praise the Lord. We're looking more normal by the minute. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. What does that mean? <laughs> there were people who were doing that to each other. He punched me in the face. I'm going to punch him in the face. No, you shouldn't do that. Well, he started it. I understand. <laughs> but you're not supposed to just whip back at people what they give at you, even though you feel perfectly justified. And I promise you, I assume everybody here at some point has been ripped off by somebody. The overwhelming urge is to rip them right back <laughs> because it's the right thing to do, right? They rip me off. I should rip them back. We're not supposed to do that. It's called turning the other cheek, which is not easy to do. Always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Why would you have to strive? You know what strive means? You know, walking in here, you didn't have to strive to walk, especially down this aisle because it goes down. Okay? If I dropped a rope from the ceiling and said, climb the rope, some of you would really have to strive. <laughs> I don't know how far I'd get. When I was 118 pounds and 18, I could go to the top very fast. I could beat all the fat guys. <laughs> but uh, I'm now in the latter category and don't think I can do that anymore. Life is hard. It's hard. It's always been hard. Don't get discouraged when you feel discouraged. Another way of saying don't feel bad when you feel bad. And I, I know that sounds crazy, but it's really true because if you feel bad, that you feel bad, then you'll feel worse. Right? And you'll spiral out of control. There's people who feel guilty just because they feel guilty. Right? If you feel, oh, I shouldn't feel bad, I feel so bad. I know I'm a Christian, I shouldn't feel so bad. Just well, stop. You're going to just wind up in a gutter somewhere. Relax. Life is hard. He says rejoice always. Why would we have to say that? Because we don't feel like rejoicing. All right? There, there are people who seem almost by nature to always be in a good mood. Uh, and that's good. Others who looked like they were baptized in prune juice. You know, those always... <laughs> snarling about something. Good Lord. Good to see you in church, you know. But whether it comes easy to you or not, we're supposed to rejoice. Rejoice. You're still breathing. You're not dead yet. Praise God. He says, hey, it was a rough day. Tomorrow might be worse. <laughs> All right. Just, just relax. It can't always be this bad. It's bound to get better at some point, generally speaking. <laughs> Whatever. We need to learn to be happy. You be happy on purpose. Now, there are people, and I, I got to say this because <laughs> people who feel bad will feel even worse after what I just said. There are people who struggle uh, with, you know, physical issues that creates depression and stuff like that. And I understand that. Uh, and by all means... Continue taking whatever you need to take to fix that. But generally speaking, and even for those people, the, the truth of the matter is, happiness is a choice. 
You choose to be happy. You know something that I pray? I mean, I prayed a couple of times today. Lord, make me content. Make me content. And it's one of the things, we'll read about it later in one of Paul's admonitions about being content. Just need to learn to be happy with where you're at. Because the reality is, there's always something to whine about, right? Gee, I wish so-and-so was nicer. I wish my husband was nicer. I wish my wife was nicer. I wish my kids weren't possessed of the devil. I wish, you know, wish, actually, that's a good one. Um, I, you know, I wish I had more money. I wish I didn't have the bills. I wish I was more successful. I'm working so hard. Why aren't things, and just, and just you know, and that just drives us constantly, right? Well, I'm working my business. How, how come my business hasn't taken off? It shouldn't be taken off, and it's still not taking off. Just, you know, I get it. There's always something. Uh, but to learn to be content, even in the midst of it all. If it never gets any better than this, I'm okay. And it's really true. We need to learn to be content. Learn to be happy. One of the things, I, I wrote this book, The Beatitudes, you know, for relationships and stuff. Is one, of, one of the chapters is just be happy. <laughs> you just gotta learn to be happy. Another one, be content. They're really connected to each other. You just gotta learn to be content. If you always think Something has to change before you're happy. You'll always be a victim all your life. I can't be happy until I get a better car. I can't be happy until I get a nicer house. Can't be happy until I get a younger wife. I can't be, I'm serious, this stuff never ends. These thoughts come to people, something needs to change. I can't be happy unless I get a better job. I can't be happy. I just don't allow yourself to live there. Learn to be content. There's great freedom in that. I promise you, there's great freedom in that. When you can actually get up and be totally happy with where you're at right now. That's not to say you don't want things to improve. I want things to improve. I have good desires, desires I pray about. Jesus said, whatever you desire, pray. But I don't have to have those things to be happy. One of the reasons I think I get a disproportionate amount of my prayers answered is because I don't need those things to be happy. I talked about it in Sunday's message, right? If your desire, well, week before Jimmy was here last Sunday, but, you know, if, if your desire is, you gotta have, God, I gotta have this, you know, you're not gonna get it. He's not gonna give it to you. If you think you need something before you can be happy, you're, you're, it's all misplaced. We can be happy, even if you're sick, even if somebody you love is sick, even if you're broke, even if nobody likes you, even if people criticize you, it's hard not to be unhappy. <laughs> but you still can be happy. It's because our joy comes from knowing him. Rejoice always. Boy, I could pray for an hour just on that alone. Rejoice always. Here's the next one. Pray continually. Now, I think it's good that you take time out in your day to get along with God and pray. Uh, it doesn't have to be for an hour or some extended period. I, I think it's good to do that. Having said that, the Bible will tell you you should always be praying. When you drive your car, pray. While walking from point A to point B, pray. Talk to God. You know, uh, have this wonderful connection with your Heavenly Father. Pray continue. Give thanks in all circumstances, which goes right back to be content. Be thankful for your circumstances. Well, my circumstances suck. Well, be happy. <laughs> Give thanks in all of them, all your circumstances. Here is a man. Uh, he writes about this later. 
where he says there were times where we were beaten, where we were hungry, where we didn't have jack, everything was awful. And then he says, but I've learned the secret to be content. That's when he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the context of that verse. People always quote it as a conquer the world verse. There's lots of wonderful conquer the world verses, but that's not really a conquer the world verse. That's a my life sucks verse. My life is terrible. I can do all things. The all things he's talking about is not changing the world. The all things is all that crap in your life. I'm the pastor, I can say that. But it's just the reality, right? Days like this, I'm glad I don't have a committed answer to. That's what it is, all this awful stuff in your life. You can handle I can do all these things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, clearly, I have been hungry and I've been full. I prefer the latter. I've had nothing and I've had, at times, much. I prefer the latter. I mean, I'm like anybody else. But I can honestly say, I don't know that I'm necessarily happier one over the other. Because I've learned the secret to be content. Oh man, if you get that, it'll change your life. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's back that up. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks. This is God's will for you. Let me talk to you a little bit about God's will. Oftentimes, people get really hung up about God's will and others. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to live? What job am I supposed to have? You talk about God's will, that's the kind of questions people are obsessed about. The Bible rarely talks about it in those terms. When it talks about God's will, you know what God's will? Pastor, I just want to know what God's will. I'll tell you what God's will is for you. Rejoice always, pray all the time, and give thanks even when everything stinks. That's when God's love. That's God's will. Love your neighbor. All these things that we're talking about. This is God's will. Who you are on the inside. Whether or not you work at Burger King or McDonald's, I don't think God cares. I really don't. And if he does, he will intervene on your behalf. The will of God isn't, you know, what you're supposed to do, some great mystery. Everybody says, I got to pray and and fast and cry and beg. I I don't know. There's people who teach it that way. I I just don't see it. I, I just think it's inconsistent. Anybody have children? I've used this analogy before. You have children, right? Do you wait for them to seek your face to find out what you want them to do? Or do you tell them? I found that we tell them. If you have employees, you wait until they come and say, oh, boss, boss, thou art an incredible boss. And I know thou art filled with great wisdom. And you fill this incredible building with your energy. What do you want me to do, boss? Please tell me. No. Usually the boss says, hey, (laughs) do this. All right? And you'll see the book of Acts, right? These guys, they weren't having revelations in each one of these trips. The fact why I started the trip going this way is he got in a big argument with Barnabas that went that way. Doesn't sound very spiritual. It wasn't. So he went this way. He eventually gets here. That's when God shows up. So hey, I want you to go this direction. And don't go this direction. Okay. When God wants you to do something, he's a big boy. He will tell you. But most of this God's will stuff is not about your job or where you live or all this other kind of stuff. Well, what's my ministry waiting for some voice from heaven? The will of God, if you read the scriptures, most of it has to do with stuff like this. This is, you want to do the will of God? That's the will of God. Well, where should I work? I don't know. Get the best job you can. 
Earn your own money. Be quiet. Don't be a busybody. All right? Uh, here's another one. Again, these, you, we could have read this all in, in 30 seconds, going through this whole list, and we just, it wouldn't have stuck. I don't know how much it's sticking now. I mean, you really need to slow down on this practical Christian living. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is my favorite part of it all. I appreciate the theology. I do. But man, this. And I don't know what the point of all this is if we don't do this. There's a lot of Christians that have the theology just nailed, but they're just back big, fat, stinking jerks, whining, complaining about everybody and everything. Disrespectful of their pastors. Just whining, ah, he's an idiot. He's not. Ignore all of this. Don't ignore this. This is all important stuff. Now, here's an important thing he says to the church. Do not quench the spirit. We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Can you quench the spirit? Yes, you can. And there's a lots of different ways you can do that. We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Now, I will say this. Personal beef of mine. If there's one context where people say we quench the spirit today is whenever the pastor gets up to preach and we stop singing. And people complain, why don't we sing more? Because that's, that's really how the Spirit of God moves. No, that's not true. Singing is singing. Right? It's all worship. All of it's worship. There's people who really think, and they don't like the fact that some churches have a short amount of, of singing. There's people raised in very charismatic worlds, Pentecostal worlds. And I was in that world. I get it, man. We used to sing for an hour and a half. One song. You ever been in those services? Any of you guys? Anybody in a service like that? Yeah, yeah, sorry. The same chorus over and over and over ad nauseum. Now, actually, I got a chance. Some of the services were a lot of fun. They were great, man. You can get an emotional rush from that and crying at the altars. And man, God, it's a wonderful thing. But singing in and of itself is not what is spirituality. A lot of people today think that, and they are just wrong. Okay, it's a wonderful expression. It's a valuable expression. The Bible encourages us to sing. But that's not uh, when we stop singing, all of a sudden quenching the spirit. All right? We need to be sensitive to the spirit of God in all that we do. Can we quench the spirit? Sure. How? When we're not getting along with people, we're fighting with each other, we want to punch the guy in the face because he punched us in the face. We don't rejoice. We don't want to pray. We don't want to be thankful because our life stinks. This is how one quenches the spirit by doing the opposite of everything he just said. Now, this next one is an interesting thing. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now, this one is a little bit of a tricky one. And... Uh, the reason he says don't do it is because it's easy to do it. And let me explain. Uh, there's a thing that he'll talk about when we get to Corinthians very, very in great detail. Gifts of the Spirit. One of the gifts of the Spirit is the, the gifts of prophecy. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, uh, telling the future. You know, I prophesy tomorrow, you know, you're going to find an extra $500 in your shirt pocket. All right. That would be cool. <laughs> it can be that. But prophecy, the Bible talks about, is usually divine utterances when God is actually speaking through people. And this can happen 
in all kinds of ways. Now, in theory, <laughs> national stress theory, because I don't be so arrogant, but when a pastor gets up to preach, in a sense, he's supposed to be prophesying. Uh, you think everything you say is prophetic? No, I do not. I can tell, however, when I'm preaching and all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes on me and I can sense it. Anyone who's done it knows what I'm talking about. It's like God takes over and it just becomes, you know, I'm more shocked than you of what's happening. And, it, and it's a wonderful thing. It's something that just comes to life. But it doesn't have to be in a pulpit. I have been speaking to people and all of a sudden I could feel the presence of God and I start speaking to them words of life that they need to hear. I've had people do that to me. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And the Bible says, don't, uh, uh, don't uh, treat those with contempt. You know, the reason it's easy to treat them with contempt is because there's a lot of people who do this that are full of stuffing. All right? And you got some just wackadoodles. Have you ever been any around spiritual wackadoodles? That everything they're prophesying, and the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, you know, and, I remember that one restaurant I was sitting in and it was really cold and I'm shivering. And some girl said to me, I can tell by the Spirit of God that there's a demon on your shoulder and he's making you shake right now. You know, of course, the more she said that, the more I said, because it was freezing in that place, right? She would be in the wackadoodle category. And at some point, there's just enough crazy people, <laughs> something the dentist forgot, as my mouth comes back to life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Piece of a filling or something. I don't know what that was. <laughs> what was I talking about? Rackadoodles, yes. <laughs> the pot calling the kettle black. It's kind of a wackadoodle to me. All right, just because some people do that, it's easy not to listen to anybody. And you just shut it down. Don't do that, he says. Don't do that. Uh, he says, test it. You can see what's really God and what really isn't. How you test it, it just depends on what the, what the situation is. But, you know, there's ways when God uses someone to speak into your life, if you'll pay attention, first of all, I, th I believe you'll, you'll sense that. And secondly, if you'll be careful, you'll pay attention to see that God is actually backing it up somehow, some way in your life. And that, it's a very powerful experience and it helps kind of keep people on the road. Don't, don't quench that. Don't despise it. Don't look down on it. Uh, particularly in your own life. Don't think, well, I could never do that. Yeah, you can. If you'll be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and get the word of God in you and you'll find there'll be opportunities. You'll be speaking to somebody's life and you can just feel like God is using you to talk to somebody. And it's a wonderful thing. So don't despise it. Uh, don't treat it with contempt. Just test it. Hold on to what's good. Reject the evil. I've heard people use the analogy of, you know, uh, eating a cherry. It tastes great, but you spit out the seed, right? Uh, and sometimes you get both, right? Uh, there's been times when, quite frankly, a lot of times, I listen to a preacher preach, and he says something that I think, ah, that's wrong, right? That's why I like to preach, because I haven't listened to anybody else. But sometimes I listen to somebody else. And he says something, I don't agree. And some of you, I'm sure you've had that reaction to me. <laughs> so, I don't know about that. Well, you don't dismiss the whole thing. You know? You should be able to, I mean, I've gone into churches that, you know, pretty stuffy, 
high Presbyterian, you know, whatever. And everybody, while the guy's talking, he's asleep because he's listening to him. It's like pouring sand in your eyes. I mean, this is brutal. But even then, if you listen, you can always get something out of it. And you find that you might, in some cases, there's a lot of pits <laughs> that you're spitting out, but there's still something good in there. Test the stuff, hold on to what's good, reject what is bad. And then he says this, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who caused you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Now, we don't do that unless you go to the Latino service. All right. Then you kiss all the girls because that's what you do. Right? Right? That's, it's, it's culture. If you see that going on, we're not being perverts. All right? Even someone who doesn't know you for the very first time will walk up and offer, your, offer their cheek to you. I kind of dig it. I think it's cool. But I'm, I'm old. Uh, so, uh, it's a cultural thing. I was in Italy where everybody kissed everybody. And it wasn't just the guys kissing the girls. You kissed everybody. The guys kissing the guys. Which is a little creepy. From, from my viewpoint. Of course, you always dreaded the really old guys. Because they, they have beards that are like made of diamond. They're just rough, nasty. And you, and you, you go, pache, and you kiss them on the and you just, oh, your face is red from, you know, these old guys, these stubble coming out, you know. We'd laugh about it, man. Look out for that guy, man. Pache, everybody, everybody kisses everybody. So this is a cultural thing in the United States of America, outside of Latino culture. We don't do this. Um, should we all start kissing each other? No, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Again, creepy at so many levels. But, uh, but it would be really weird in this culture to do that. Now, this is something we will struggle with as we get into the teaching of Paul. Because some of the things that Paul teaches on, I think, falls very much in the line of the culture. And that's why we don't do it today. And there are people who say, you know, Paul taught la-la-la. How come you guys don't do la-la-la? And we go, well, because we think he was talking about a culture that this just isn't our culture. So what difference does that make? Well, it makes a big difference because back over in chapter 4, verse 12, we said, live out your daily life uh, that you might win the respect of outsiders. Oftentimes, he would talk about we do things to relate to other people and to live in such a way. If you embrace certain things in the culture, particularly one of them, and we'll get into it when we get into it, is how Paul talked about women. He basically said women should not talk. He doesn't pay. That's what he literally said. Women shouldn't talk. They should be quiet in the church. They can talk later. You know. And there's people who get upset because I've had them who come to our church and they'll write me, you know, I think it's terrible that you let your women talk. <laughs> okay. Maybe this isn't the church for you. You know. Uh, so, but again, we think that's cultural. And if you follow that culture, it will be so offensive to outsiders, they won't have anything to do with us. You see what I'm saying? 
And you got to kind of ride that line a little bit. At some point, listen, it's, you know, we got to make a stand on this. Things that are important, we make a stand on. But some of the stuff is cultural, and we just don't go, because actually, and knowing Paul, I think he'd say the exact opposite today. I would say, to a great degree, he would encourage because of the culture. We want to live the kind of culture that is attractive to outsiders. Not that sins, that he would never go with. But on some of these things, and, and we'll get to those. Uh, you know, that's still true in, in, in certain parts of the world today. You know, like, in, you know, in Saudi Arabia. You know, women aren't allowed to drive cars. Uh, they can't, you know, when they walk down the street, a woman has to walk so many feet behind her husband. You know what I mean? Uh, and women are supposed to be very subservient and stuff like that. And when they meet in their mosques, because I've, I've had them invite me. They want to have me come do marriage seminars. Okay, you know. Waving a lot of money. Okay, you have my attention. I said, yeah, but the women can't be in the meeting. They have to be in another room watching on video. I said, well, it doesn't really work for me. <laughs> I'm talking about men and women and, you know, but that's their culture, right? And you come in and Christian women don't have their heads covered and they walk around in public alongside their husbands and stuff like that. In that culture, if we acted like we do in Western culture, over there as Christians, it would not go over. They would reject Christianity straight away because it's so offensive to their culture. So if we were in that culture, I would say all you girls should have something covering your heads, okay, and walk behind your husbands when he walks in front of so, Which in this culture, you try to do that here, we're idiots. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I think you adjust to the culture, do whatever you can to win people to Jesus. Anyway, we'll get to that. So he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Uh, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And that's the end of the first letters of the Thessalonians. It's a very short time later that he writes the second letter right away. Uh, and mainly because someone was going around saying, Jesus already came back. And he has to answer that question to them. So that was the main reason. And he'll deal with that and we'll get into the end time stuff more. But it's, it's rather fascinating. When we get done with that, we'll pick up in Acts and see where he goes from Corinth onto Ephesus and all the stuff. Like, so it's, it's all interesting stuff, okay? Anyway, God bless you guys. Uh, don't forget to take your children with you. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you later. Bye. <laughs>